But we want to take some time now to look at some other very important sites in the city that have come under attack when it comes to things like graffiti and property damage. And joining us to talk about that is Lorraine Lowe, Executive Director of the Dr. Sun Yat-sen Classical Chinese Garden. Lorraine, thank you so much for taking some time with us this, uh, this afternoon. Hi, Jill. Thanks for having me. Uh, how are things at the garden right now? Uh, the things are a little quiet, um, you know, due to the downturn of the tourism. But, you know, we're, we're gearing up for Chinese New Year and there's going to be activities this weekend and the following weekend. So we are looking forward to that. That's uh, that's good that there are still some festivities taking place and people will be able to gather. I understand, though, uh, as well, this is a place for people that aren't familiar with this garden. It's, it's such a beautiful, beautiful spot. Uh, but I understand there has been an, an issue, a problem with people uh, with graffiti and property damage. Yes, it's just been an ongoing issue. I mean, more so lately uh, after COVID. Uh, the cultural center next door, the garden, we are constantly dealing with graffiti, vandalism. Just yesterday, uh, we were closed. I, I walked up and I see it, somebody had tried to burn a pile of, I guess, clothes that were left over or garbage right at our gate entrance. Um, again, we, you know, we deal with uh, feces, defecating, uh, people using it as a latrine, and as well, like a lot of anti-Asian graffiti, anti-policing, uh, vandalism, and, and graffiti all over the neighborhood. Hmm. And has it gotten worse? You mentioned worse during the pandemic. Have you noticed an increase in, in this type of damage and these targeted uh, graffiti attacks on the garden and the, and the surrounding buildings? Yes, uh, definitely a lot has happened since the pandemic, uh, that, which has caused us to gate off our, our main courtyard uh, for safety reasons. So we've had to deal with a number of incidences. Just, you know, it, it's it's crazy. It's just ongoing. And we, we, you know, fear for our safety. And there needs to be a balance between public safety and having um, uh, treatment options and help to those marginalized people that that need it. I've talked to many of the vulnerable people on the streets who are also victims of violence attacks. And, you know, we need to strike a balance. We need the public safety um, that, that's going to really help everybody and, and program and treatment options to really get to the, the main issues here. Right. And when you talk about the, uh, again, just to kind of touch on the graffiti, people will likely recognize the name of the garden. And in case anyone's wondering, we're talking about the same kind of courtyard and the garden and the ponds that became, I think they got perhaps the most attention when we were talking about the otter and the the koi pond. That's correct. Uh, Yes. And, And fortunately for us, we haven't seen the little guy running around. We've, you know, he's, he's, he's MIA, but I, I have heard that there were some sightings in and around the city. Right. <laughs> yes. But, but I, I know a lot of people actually, when that was happening, a lot of people came and for the first time actually discovered that beautiful garden and this place that's kind of, you know, this oasis in the city. And so is that now closed as far as people can't just come and kind of walk through and enjoy that? Uh, they can still come to our garden. Uh, we do have uh, entrance on the curl side. It, you ring the doorbell. Uh, you can purchase a ticket at the gate or you can purchase it online and you will still have access 
to the uh, garden side. Now, the public park side, that's closed off at the moment, but you can still get a beautiful view and you can still get the same experience in a very quiet, tranquil, beautiful environment. And it's, it can be enjoyed all year round. All right. Well, that's uh, that's still a, a positive thing then for sure. Looking, though, at some of the photos of the graffiti on the outside of the buildings, that's got to be a huge cost as well, isn't it, as far as dealing with it and getting rid of the graffiti uh, every time it's painted? Yes. I mean, it, it, we, you know, we're working together with the Parks Board, who's been supportive. They, they've also helped us clean off the walls. Uh, but there are certain areas where we have to take care of and. Unfortunately, you know, I guess graffiti is, is very popular in the city because the store-bought chemicals, they don't work that great. But, you know, the specialized stuff, it's sold out everywhere. And, you know, we call Graffiti Be Gone and there is like a, a voice messaging system that's full. So I think it's a symptom of a bigger problem, a complex and bigger problem that we have in the city. And, uh, yeah, that needs to be looked at so, you know, these sort of things don't happen. And you mentioned that, and I know we've talked to police about that in the past, too, with the police saying we can't just arrest everybody and put everybody in jail. That's not going to solve the issues. And raising some of the issues that you just mentioned there as well, there needs to be more treatment, there needs to be more services available for people. But it's got to be frustrating as well in that in, in cases of, of graffiti and these targeted attacks, it's it's. It's somebody who's making that choice to destroy property and to deface the the garden and to deface the building. Yes, it's really disheartening. We don't understand why we're being targeted. Um, It's constant. And I I tell you, like the cultural center, they go through this far worse than we have. It's just, it's ongoing. And yes, I, I think that there needs to be uh, a, a, a spotlight on this issue of, of, you know, the broken windows and the graffiti just being a symptom of, of what the bigger problem and issues are. Uh, and you kind of touched on this. Do you get the sense or is there anything written in the graffiti or that's in these attacks that shows when you say that it's, it's unclear why the garden and why the, the cultural center continually gets targeted? Do you think it's, it's the location and where it happens to be or are people targeting it because it is a Chinese cultural center? We are starting to believe that just because of the repeated attacks uh, and and the type of of vandalism. So just a couple of months ago, we had an eight-inch diameter saw blade shoved right into our gate entrance. And as I've mentioned, you know, using it as a latrine and and the type of graffiti, yes, there's some anti-Asian messaging, there's anti-everything. But, you know, a lot of the times it's just really incoherent, meaningless tags. So, yeah, it, it, it's, it's hard to say, but I got to tell you that, you know, having the, the number of incidences repetitively, it, it's starting to make me wonder if it is targeted and it, is it because we are a, a cultural institution and pillar of this, this neighborhood. Do you have cameras set up or is there a police investigation then ongoing to try and catch whoever it is that's doing this? Yes, the VPD has been tremendously helpful as all, as usual. Um, we do have cameras set up. We're working with the Cultural Center, and we are working with VPT right now to try and investigate the situation. But yes, definitely, uh, just it's it, it, the VPD have been a great help with the, this community in general.
All right. Well, and and just to leave it uh, on a bit of a more positive note, uh, Lorraine, you mentioned uh, off the top there that there are plans underway for some celebrations and such. I imagine like everything, they probably look a little different this year. But can you just uh, briefly tell us what's what's planned as far as what's going to be happening in the community for those celebrations? So, so we've got lots of fun activities this weekend and next weekend. So January 29th and the 30th. Saturday is going to be the big day. We're going to have um, timed entries, uh, social distancing. We're following COVID protocol, and we will be having a lion dance in the garden. We're going to have arts and crafts. We're going to have some virtual poetry uh, sessions and workshops, some Cantonese sing-alongs. I encourage everybody to just come visit our website, VancouverChineseGarden.com, and check out our events section, and they'll tell you everything there. All right. Lorraine, thank you so much for joining us and for talking about this today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Jill. We were just talking with Rob Levy, business analyst, about the Bank of Canada holding the interest rate steady, even with rising inflation, but warning that hikes are on the horizon, likely coming in March. Let's check in now with Angela Calla, host of The Mortgage Show here on CKNW. Angela, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, Jill. Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year to you as well. I want to talk about this and what advice you're giving people. No change in the interest rates, but what does that mean for people as far as people who are holding mortgages or even people who are considering in the next few months getting into the housing market? Definitely. It's time to adjust your payment to make sure that when an interest rate hike does come, if you are on a variable rate mortgage, you're comfortable with the strategy that you've selected. So right now, it's very common for a variable rate mortgage holder to have a variable rate between 1.35 to 1.5%. And if they compared that with a fixed rate that they would have today, there would be a $300 a month payment difference. So when the Bank of Canada increases its interest rates, it most commonly increases them in 0.25 increments. So the Bank of Canada would have to raise rates four to six times for you to be at the level in which you would be if you had selected a fixed rate. So if you're a variable, understanding those numbers and how to avoid future payment shock is really critical in you deciding to stick stick through the strategy. And so taking a variable rate and paying it like a fixed will protect you against inflationary pressures that you and I simply can't control. Right. Are you getting calls then from people or concerns on with this, with the no change today, but the anticipated changes on when exactly might be the time to make a switch as far as how people are paying their mortgages? Yes, and we absolutely should be doing that today because on March 2nd or in April when the interest rates do rise, you don't want to feel a sense of panic or not have confidence in the strategy that you selected. And remember, if the variable rates do go up, then the fixed rates that are available today are no longer going to be the case because on average, the cost of security for a fixed rate is generally at least about a percent higher than what you can get. So I'm a variable rate mortgage person myself. I'm certainly not rushing to lock in, but it is important to look at your variable rate and say, do I actually have the best variable rate mortgage for me? Knowing that your mortgage rate 
today could be anywhere from 1.35 to 1.5. So maybe if you don't have as high of a discount on your variable rate, you want to redo your variable rate and get an even lower discount. Or if you understand that right now you can get a fixed mortgage rate below 3%, maybe you want to look at providing that comfort to yourself now. But if you want to focus on how do you get the most amount of principal into your mortgage and pay it down faster, the surefire way to do that would certainly be to have a variable and pay it like a fixed. Now, if you want to do a quick then and now, Jill, 10 years ago today, the five-year fixed mortgage rate was 2.99%. So we've had a very significant period of time where interest rates have been have been really, really low and they're below inflation right now. So an increase certainly is not a reason to panic, but understanding those numbers and formulating that into your budget is really important so you don't feel that unease when the inevitable is going to happen. Right. And do you find too, is it a personality thing or it's got to be a certain comfort level as far as, uh, I know you always say that a mortgage isn't something that you just look at every five years, that it is something Mm -hmm. you kind of, you have to pay attention to. But I would imagine there are a lot of people that aren't, aren't comfortable having to always be on top of it and be ready to make that move. Exactly. And so your personal comfort level plays a big role in that. And if, you know, even if you have the numbers and the plan might be in place and you know that you might be ahead with a variable rate mortgage, having the peace of mind to be able to sleep at night is worth its weight in gold. And it's so, it can be quite complicated to try to look online and figure out what mortgage option is good for you because, I mean, there's eight main characteristics that interest rates are based on. Uh, The rate that's available to you will depend on your credit, your income, the amortization, the property type, the transaction type, the loan to value, occupancy, land type. So it can feel overwhelming, but know that the clarity is available to you. If you have a mortgage renewal, 50% of mortgages are up for renewal this year, Jill. That's incredible. Everyone, one out of every two people you know will have a mortgage up for renewal. Wow. Yeah, so knowing that the rates are lower today than what they're going to be in a few months, if you have a mortgage renewal coming up, you absolutely want to look at doing it earlier rather than later. And then if you do have debt outside your mortgage, rolling that in as well will really improve your cash flow so you can use this opportunity to um, this knowledge as power to really benefit your your financial freedom and security moving forward. Uh, a couple of minutes left, Angela. I wanted to ask you as well, what about people who are perhaps just thinking about or about to make that move and getting into the housing market and are worried about rates and worried about not getting that lowest rate possible? Pre-approval is key. You know, we really work on helping people get pre-approved even one to three years prior to looking for a home because setting up the right strategy is so important and proper financial planning. I'm actually doing a home buyer's seminar this Thursday at 7 o'clock, free for, for anybody who wants to join. But family planning is so important. We just had a client of ours who gifted another 
everyone's getting gifted down payments these days. They gifted them money for a down payment, but using time to their advantage, they were able to use some of that gift and contribute it to an RFP and then get a $16,000 tax refund that they used to pay out their car loan and qualify for $100,000 more in mortgage. So if you're thinking that you would like to buy a home in anywhere from three months to three years, the time to make those plans to make sure that you have everything working for you to its best advantage is absolutely now. All right. That is good advice. Definitely. Angela, we'll leave it there for today, but thanks so much for coming on the show and for talking about this. Always a pleasure. Thanks for being with us on this Wednesday afternoon. Well, you likely recognize the name Eleanor Sturko. You've heard that name on this radio station many times, but a tweet that went out earlier today from Eleanor Sturko talks about the fact that Friday is going to be the last day in the media relations department with the Surrey RCMP. So what better thing to do now than talk a little bit not only about what's next for Sergeant Sturko, but what her career has been like so far. And Eleanor Sturko is with us on the line. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Jill. Thrilled to be able to spend some time with you this afternoon. Well, so glad that that you were able to do this. Before we get into some of those highlights, how long have you been in the media relations department? Well, I've been in the media relations uh, for Surrey RCMP since 2018, so it's actually my fourth anniversary uh, next month of being in this particular unit. So it's been an awesome time, and I can't even believe that four years has just flown by. And how do you, uh, how do officers uh, not end up? I suppose isn't the right phrase, but how do you, how do officers go into that department, or is it something that that you wanted to do, or do do officers kind of have to spend some time there in, in certain circumstances? No, in my case, um, for Surrey, I had to compete for this job. So this was something that I really did want to do. I had some media relations experience in the RCMP when I was posted to the Northwest Territory. So I had an idea of what the role would be like. But there's some aspects of it. I, I guess I didn't maybe realize to some extent how busy actually the media relations role for this detachment would be. But it was something I had to compete for. I wanted to do it. And I've just honestly loved every minute of the last four years. You can say if you didn't. You know, you don't have to say you loved it. (laughs) No, I really did. (laughs) And, you know, there's some reasons why I liked it that are probably um, maybe not expected. Um, But I I would have to say, like, some of the things that were really, really fun over these last four years is just the amount of engagement that I've had from members of the community. And even at times when we've appeared on national news, when people from across the country have either, you know, DM'd me in my you know, Twitter, or they've, I've even had people send me newspaper clippings of myself and, and cards and, and stuff like that. It's just been so heartwarming and so great to know that people, um, you know, are getting our messages and that they've really been supportive over the last four years. And so four years in that department, but how long have you actually been an RCMP officer? I've been an RCMP officer for 12 and a half years. And how has it changed? Obviously, the pandemic has changed a lot of things in in every type of work. But what else have you seen that kind of sticks out to you as change within the department during that 12 and a half years? Oh, my gosh. You know, there's so much. And this is like a whole day's program we could have. But, you know, a lot has changed in particular, I would say, with a lot of social issues over the 12-year duration of my career. Um, particularly like my first posting in the RCMP was in Langley. So I worked at, in Langley RCMP um, starting in 09. And, you know, a lot of things like our opioid crisis, um, 
some mental health issues, things like that changing. And, and along with that, I think people's perspective on policing and the role of police in the community. So there's been a lot of learning. And, and even over the last couple of years, I would say tremendous changes in the way that we conduct our business and especially the way that we communicate with the community. How have you noticed perception of police changing? Well, police, the perception of police has changed, I would say, particularly over the last couple of years with a lot of challenges to police about how we conduct our business, more engagement in terms of historic injustice, um, the way that people perceive us and our role as um, a police agency at the inception of our country called Canada and and the role of the Northwest Mounted Police and in particular the RCMP. And um, I would say that the challenges that have come to us with um, conversations about defunding the police and about different social issues have been for the better. Um, you know, I guess it was probably 2020 when we first got into the pandemic and a lot of really strong and powerful voices were coming forward with um, concerns about interactions with police and about mental health. And, um, you know, so we actually in our unit engaged in a lot of media relations around that and, and conversations and wanted to participate in stories. And I think it really has made a difference, at least for us, in terms of getting the ball rolling in a lot of cases to try and improve our services around those conversations. And when you talk about things like that, and and a lot of issues, not that they're only happening in the States, but a lot of things that were perhaps sparked by events in the States, the the death of George Floyd, uh, the the launch or the really the rising of the movement of Black Lives Matter. We saw a lot of that here as well, with police officers being told they're not welcome in pride parades, that that they were not to be included in, in things like that. How did that impact you? Oh my goodness, yeah. Well, you know, I think there's there's a lot of to be said about having conversations about historical relationships. And so for me, I mean, I have a family history. I've been very open about it, that my uncle was part of the LGBT purge. He was dismissed from the RCMP when they found out he was gay. And then here I am all these years later, not only serving in the RCMP, but chosen as a spokesperson for the biggest detachment. So, um there's a lot to unpack like with our history. Police in Canada did have historically troubled relationships um, as a result of past legislation and, and responsibilities and roles and, and you know ideas and ethics that were previously held. And so that it's impacted me personally, but I think it's time and it's been a really excellent opportunity, especially to be in a role here at Surrey RCMP where we were able to have those you know, be questioned by members of the public and and be questioned by the media and to be able to look at those conversations and actually affect change within our organization. So, I mean, it's, it's difficult on one hand because, you know, as a queer cop, of course, would I love to go march uh, in the pride parade? Heck yes. I would like to have two gorgeous queens on either side of me, you know, be in, in a float and, and just have a heck of a good time. But, you know, I think where we are at present, is a time in our sort of generation of policing where we're going to have to step back and look at some of our historical relationships and work closely with the community on a path forward to make sure that we strengthen the institutions instead of just merely relying on things as we've done them in the past. Right. And I guess, too, some of the the questions that came from that, too, were that if you were not including police and one of the arguments being police in in some cases made people feel uncomfortable and made people feel uh, scared, they uh, triggered 
bad uh, interactions that they'd had. But isn't there also an argument to be made that that shouldn't you be in the parade and shouldn't people be part of the solution and in and, and being inclusive? Well, 100% that police definitely need to be involved um, and to engage with the community on healing historical um, relationships. Does that mean that we have to be involved in a celebration? Uh, perhaps not. But are there other avenues and other um, sort of initiatives that we can build with the community to, to do exactly that, which is to not only advocate for the relationship in the community, but also, for example, you know, the work that I would do or my reason to want to participate in Pride is to also help change the institution and to make sure that we are inclusive and equitable and um, that we have diversity represented. So, yes, we want to make sure that, you know, especially we're making sure that our institutions and our, um, you know, government and and services to the communities are keeping up with the way that Canada is changing. But it doesn't necessarily have to come as a result of a, a parade where a celebration for the community where that's not the time for us to be there. I think that there's other avenues and that, you know, maybe we're being provided instead of relying on inclusion in the parade, we're being provided another challenge, another opportunity to come up with something new to engage the community. All right. Uh, How has the pandemic changed policing? What challenges has that brought specifically to the work that you do? Well, in the communications context, I can tell you that it's had a huge impact on what we were doing. So I would say, um, you know, over the last four years, we did more than 1,500 press releases, spoke to thousands of issues, um, you know, and for us, it used to be, honestly, you know, if there Anything that happened, Surrey might be the top story of the evening. And as the pandemic emerged and other things uh, took priority, uh, some of the focus and our ability and our ease at which we had communicated with the public and been able to get some of our stories on the air actually diminished quite a bit. So it's we've had to be a little bit more creative. And we've also looked for other ways that we could communicate with people since a lot of that airtime has been taken up and, you know, rightly so, um, with health concerns and with information for the public about the pandemic. Continuing now with Surrey RCMP Sergeant Eleanor Sturko in the Surrey RCMP Media Relations Department, but only until Friday. We'll talk about what's next in just a couple of minutes. Sergeant Sturko, though, I wanted to ask you about some of the stories you remember, because obviously you're on the TV and on the radio when bad things happen and you're talking about that, but also good news stories. What are some of the ones that will stand out for you? Oh, my gosh. Well, I mean, there's a lot of great news stories. And and one of the things, you know, my team here, we were having a chat about that this morning. And even though we did so many um, news stories and press releases over the last four years, every day there's stuff that happens here that it's probably not breaking news and it's not the front page story. But in somebody's life, um, it is a front page story. So stuff is happening here every day that I would have to say is very incredible. But for me, some of the ones that I am going to remember the most is right after I first got here, actually, we did a press conference because um, someone had turned in war medals. If you remember this one, found at a bus stop after Remembrance Day, and uh, we were able to return the medals to um, uh, a Sikh veteran and return those to him. And he was so grateful. And just it was an adorable story. The person was just so lovely that that one I'll remember for sure. And 
Uh, other ones that were really happy for us, like about recovering some little baby puppies that were stolen. And the, everybody, I think, in the community was hanging on the edge of their seat to see if we would be able to recover them. And, and it was really great. But, you know, for, for me too, even, you know, a lot of uh, some of the things that have been more um, difficult or some of the sort of bad news stories, I guess, if you want to say, have been really impactful for me. Um, one of the ones in particular that I think will last with me forever is um, when we had the transit police officer shot here in Surrey and the investigation um, and all the media relations and all the help that media gave us um, when we were investigating and looking for the suspect in that. The, the first night, actually, after the shooting, we did our initial sort of press conference and then I ended up sleeping over here at the detachment and I slept on the floor here in our media relations office because I wanted to keep an eye on the social media overnight in case any tips came in. So um, stuff that people don't always see, but, you know, it was a stressful few days um, hoping that the officers involved in the investigation would be able to find him and just really hoping that nobody else would in the community would get hurt until they could lock that guy down. So um, a lot of stuff happens in our community, but it's a, it's really great and we've had a lot of great support from from the community did you spend many nights sleeping on the floor at the media (laughs) relations department no i I would have to say that after i slept over that night um i decided that a better idea would be monitoring the media relations proxy from my home and (laughs) that i wouldn't have to sleep on the floor but i was pretty jacked up when that happened you know i think a lot of people in the community were worried about my colleagues worried about community members and i i just was determined that if, you know, I was hoping and praying that actually a tip might come in to help us resolve it as quickly as possible. So so that was a, a really an impactful file for me. Um, people know, obviously, that there is a transition taking place from RCMP to the Surrey Police Force. What's it like being there right now during that switch? Well, yeah, it's been interesting because, you know, I started in my role prior to our uh, last municipal election. And so, I mean, there was a lot of challenges in media relations dealing with even a lot of stuff that went on during the campaign. And, you know, we have an obligation to remain neutral, obviously, um, in terms of any type of political um, things that are going on, but we also have a responsibility to correct things like misinformation. So it was a delicate balance of making sure that we're monitoring for misinformation, but not uh, interfering in any way and allowing um, you know people to have accurate information without um, per- any perceived influence. And so that was really tough. Um, and then, of course, you know when you're working in an environment where um, you know, we have still a lot of responsibility in the city. Um, we're still the police of jurisdiction, but, you know, knowing that the police, uh, you know, is being transitioned to a municipal force, it has its moments of, you know, it, it does drain the morale in, in some regard. So, uh, and and in my role as the supervisor for media relations, um, you know, looking at ways in which we can make sure that we continue to support our members and allow the community to see what we're doing, even in the midst of the transitions, has been challenging. And um, But I'm really proud of the way things have turned out um, at this point. And, and I, I'm happy that I'm, even though I'm leaving media, I'm actually still staying in the detachment. So I'm like a bad smell. You haven't quite got rid of me yet. <laughs> well, we have a couple of minutes left. Talk about what you are going to be doing next. 
Yeah, I'm thrilled to be going just actually downstairs from my office now, and I'll be heading to the Diversity and Indigenous Policing Unit, uh, which has been in operation as a unit involving uh, police officers for over five years. And the outreach that was being done and the training internally and externally has been going on here at our detachment for over 18 years. So the the main role of of the unit that I'm going to is actually to present internal training sessions, raising awareness around diversity and cultural uh, sensitivity and issues within our detachment. And then we also present external training and sessions to raise awareness about policing services, so how and when to call police. And then um, one a really big part of our role is actually talking to new Canadians and refugees about um, their rights here, um, the role of police, and how we can best support them. So uh, the unit that I'm going to actually did just under 200 presentations to more than 6,000 people uh, last year, and we have actually we're the number one destination for refugees in BC. So I'm very much thrilled to be able to go out in the community and still talk with people and to be able to help welcome new Canadians and and all people to let them know what the role of the police here is and that they have rights and and we're going to do our very best to welcome them and help them feel safe. All right. Well, we wish you all the best in your new role and you will be missed in the media relations department. We'll try and uh, squeeze one more, uh, maybe one more interview out of you before Friday, but who knows? Uh, Sergeant (laughs) Sturko, thanks though for taking the time today uh, to look back and look ahead and chat with us about this. Thank you so much for having me. It's just been such an honor to be able to to serve in this role. Thank you so much. Thanks for being with us. Well, we're going to spend some time now talking about something. It's not at the top of the news today, and nor should it be. But it was something that I saw that I thought, hmm, that's interesting. I wonder who would purchase that. And it was a tweet that someone had shared from Canadian Tire saying that they have come out with a Canadian Tire candle. And it talks about how smell can trigger the best memories. And to celebrate the store's 100th year... They apparently answered a question many people were asking for and went ahead and created a candle with that distinctive scent. And if you've ever walked into a Canadian Tire, you know that it doesn't matter which one you walk into. They've all got that same scent inside the store. Well, now you can get that in a candle. So I wanted to talk a little bit more about why we are so connected to scent and what kind of role it plays in our lives. And joining me is Olivia Jesler, who is the founder of Future of Smell. Olivia, thanks so much for being here. Hi, thank you, Jill. Great to be here. You uh, talk a lot about this. Your career uh, really focuses on fragrance, on scent technology. Can you talk a little bit about how important smell is for us? Well, yeah, sure. So our sense of smell's main purpose is survival and reproduction. So it's really there to be able to smell and sample if the environment is safe around us. And even if food that we're eating is safe or not, that's also why we very easily remember smells and have such strong emotional reactions. It's actually for safety. So we don't go and eat that again because we felt sick when we ate it the first time. So I think that that's kind of really the crux of smell and reproduction because we actually smell the genetic information in people who are going to be like the best partners for us. Interesting. So even even though we might not know then what's drawing us to something or, or, or be able to really connect it to smell, it's still playing a big role as far as decisions that we make? Correct. So 
smell happens more subconsciously and we're alerted only when it smells off or smells bad. But if it's like working together with the environment and with our expectations, it doesn't really trigger anything and we won't like really notice the smell. What about things that maybe we've put out of our minds or don't remember and then you smell something that brings it back to you? Is it connected really closely as well to memory? Yeah. So the way it works is our sense of smell is the only sense where the molecules, the outside stimuli, connects directly into our brain. And it then relays into the amygdala, which is where we process like fight or flight responses, where we need very quick reactions. And this is also where memory and emotion are processed. So that's why there's such a strong and close connection to um, emotions when we smell something and it can just trigger us and bring us back to a memory, a very distinct memory in our past. And do we know why then for some people, and I know that you you deal a lot with fragrance as well, do we not know why that for some people a smell might be described as very pleasant and people are drawn to it, but that very same smell for somebody else, it could be displeasing. It could be something they don't like at all. Yeah, totally. So it's because we form these associations mainly in our first few years of life. The first time we smell it, we're kind of, whatever that smell is, we associate with that entire environment and emotions around it when we first smell it. So if, you're, if you have like a, a, you know, a memory of a fight or some negative emotional experience when you first were eating something specific, you will not like that smell because it's programmed together with the emotion and the memory. That's why. So people have different experiences with scent. But you can say that in general, populations um, like certain age groups, uh, certain cultures will have, there's going to be a lot of smells that you can pretty much predict that they'll be, that they'll have certain emotional reactions like positive, comforting emotional reactions based on certain smells. I think I was looking at this earlier and at the top of the list or, or smells that generally speaking, people really like uh, baked cookies or cookies that are baking in the oven uh, was pretty close to the top of the list, which makes sense. But I, I guess yes. unless you, you're like you said, if somebody has a very bad connection to that, but it, it makes sense that that would be something that's almost universal. People would say, yeah, that's a good smell. Yeah, totally. And it's also like happy childhood memories. That's also a thing because in our childhood, we have our first smell associations, and there's usually a lot of happy moments around that time. So do we know kind of at what point our smell becomes, as we're growing, at what point it becomes that it is such an important sense or how how soon it develops? Well, it's actually the first sense developed in the womb. That's kind of how, you know, mother, like a baby recognizes the mother when it first comes out also. So it's like, very important even in the initial stages of just being born. Hmm. And and one of the, because I think also if you were to ask people, if you had to give up one of your senses, it might be the one that people would pick first because you might think, oh, it would be great not to go through life experiencing bad smells, but that might not be the best choice. Yeah, there was a study, I think, years ago about like millennials wanting to give up. If they could give up a sense, it would be the sense of smell. But with this pandemic, it's really interesting because a lot of people who never thought about their sense of smell realize what life is like without 
smell. And when food tastes like nothing and you feel disconnected to your surroundings and people you love, it, it's really isolating. So there's something about that that only now people are becoming aware of. Because so many people uh, did lose their sense of smell, you mean as, as far as people yeah, who contracted COVID, COVID and that was one of the, one of the symptoms? Correct. Do we think? Do we? Do you think then that we have a bit of a, a better understanding, or maybe not understanding, but a more more of an appreciation? Like you said, something that maybe we hadn't thought of before or took for granted to realize just how much how much it impacts our life day to day. Yeah, I definitely think this is a new moment for smell, and also the candle market has been exploding. So people are seeking easy ways of like changing their environment. Um, creating sensory stimuli at home because we're still stuck at home after two years, which is pretty nuts. And I know um, this it's a Canadian store, the Canadian Tire, but it's its a store like a hardware store that does have a distinct smell no matter where, what city you're in when you walk into this store. And that's why we wanted to talk about this today because the store has come out with this candle. Does that seem like a, a good marketing move as far as bringing that smell of a store and any kind of positive association people have with it, being able, being able to, to let people take that and have it in their home? Yeah, and what I think is really unique is that they're actually they're not recreating they're not creating a new smell for the store. They're actually capturing the actual smell that people already have a memory of for I guess generations, and they're bringing that into a candle so people can connect with it at home, and they can basically extend their marketing into people's homes now in a completely new and emotional dimension. So it's really interesting as a marketing tool. Is there a a potential, though, there of it backfiring at all in that one of the things about that is it is so specific. Same when you go into a bakery, there's that specific smell in a bakery or or you go into a place. Is it does it confuse the brain or is there any way that it could be a bad thing that you're now going to be associating that smell with, say, your living room or or somewhere else where it wouldn't normally be found? Well, Yeah, well, there is this thing through repeat exposure. If we expose ourselves to it in a new environment for a long time, we will then less likely associate it with the store or we'll then associate that smell with our living room. You know what I mean? So there is a way of reprogramming the associations through repeat and prolonged exposure. So, I mean, that could happen, but I think people who buy it probably like want to they know what they're doing and they want to just experience it in like small doses at home and more like something fun, probably. All right. Uh, That's a a good way uh, of looking at it. Olivia, thank you so much. We'll leave it there for today, but thanks so much for joining us to talk about this. Of course. You're welcome. Thank you for your time. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.